Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. It's February 11th, 2009, when I'm taping this, and my guest today is Todd Zwicky, professor of law at George Mason University. Todd, welcome to Econ Talk. Great to be here, Russ. Our topic today is debt. Uh, a lot of people argue that our prosperity in America is an illusion. We've built our standard of living on debt. Uh, obviously, we've had a lot of problems in the housing market recently related to Debts that didn't get repaid. Is there any truth to this worry that somehow our standard of living is built on a house of cards and living beyond our means, et cetera? Well, certainly what we've seen over the past few years is that in the housing market, the housing market was at an unrealistic level of debt, um, and that bubble is bursting. But the more systematic question, what people usually have in mind, is the idea that uh, the consumers have too much consumer debt, too much credit card debt and that sort of thing. Well, if you look back over the course of history, this this theme, this paranoia in some sense that the sky is falling because there's too much consumer debt, that's almost as old as America itself. Uh, in, in 1873, uh, the New York Times expressed the concern that Americans were running in debt. And by 1877, the New York Times already was concerned that Americans were borrowing trouble. Uh, they were concerned in the 19th century. They were concerned in the 1910s. They were concerned in the 1940s. Uh, in 1940, Harper's Magazine asked whether debt is threatening democracy. Uh, and so what we've seen is as long as we've had debt, we've had a lot people who were concerned that other people had too much debt. Of course, you and I have the right amount. Right? <laughs> well, of course, of course. Yeah, um, I think it's an interesting question. I, I, um, we have, I suspect, a lot of emotional baggage about debt and indebtedness and fear of of the poorhouse, which in the old days or debtor's prison, which is the way uh, society dealt with folks who live beyond their means. Um, Somebody said to me the other day that obviously what we've learned from this crisis that we're in the middle of is that debt's bad. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people, you know, we swing, right. we have this sort of overcompensation. When credit is easy, we tend to perhaps, some people perhaps borrow too much. And now that we've seen the consequences of that, we tend to say, I'm never going to go into debt again. And, um, is there some uh, pendulum aspect to this? Well, there's a, a couple interesting things in what you uh, uh, what you mentioned, which is first, um, we do have a schizophrenic view towards de- debt. Um, the way I, the way we think of it, in some sense, is that credit is good and debt is bad, right? Yeah. Even though right. they're the same thing, we yeah. we recognize that credit is something that uh, uh, empowers people to be able to uh, start businesses and uh, make their lives easier. But we also recognize that there's a fear, and there's no doubt. That uh, even though I, you know, expressed the, the opinion that this idea that the sky is falling is a recurrent one, there's no doubt that as long as we've had debt, we've had people who have not been able to manage their debt very well. Um, that's always been with us, um, and it's still with us today. But I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that it's that much more of a problem today than it was in the past. And in fact, with financial innovations and the growth of consumer choice, I think, if anything, um, consumers have much more power now. They're much more empowered when it comes to uh, dealing with debt and dealing with credit uh, than they were, say, 50 years ago, when your only source of credit was your local banker who could basically charge you whatever he wanted to uh, before he would give you a loan. Because there wasn't a lot of competition in the banking business. There was a lot of restrictions on who could open a bank, how banks got started, um, couldn't operate banks across state lines, right, for a lot of time. Or- exactly, exactly. And and what we've seen um, over the, the last two or three decades is this great proliferation of consumer choice. If you think about it, the way it, it's – think, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, if you wanted to buy a new refrigerator, what would you do? You would go down to the local appliance store. You'd open up a line of credit and you'd pay it off in monthly installments, $50 a month over two or three years or something like that, right? What they would do would probably charge you 
30 or 40% interest, but they just bury it in the price of the, uh, of the refrigerator. So you might not even know you were paying it, but you basically had to get the credit with the refrigerator. If your transmission blew out and you needed all of a sudden to get a car repair, you'd have to go down to the local personal finance company, um, and borrow $3,000 as an installment debt, uh, uh, installment credit transaction where you would repay it, say $150 a month over 48 months. What we've seen since then is these are, these are people who don't have enough cash. Exactly. Hand. Right. Right. And but some you, people paid cash for some. Exactly. Some people paid some cash. But if your car was broken and you needed your car to get to work, you were going to borrow in order to do it. People would use pawn shops. People would have to borrow from friends and family. Um, there was all kinds of mechanisms people used to uh, uh, to uh, to uh, um, make ends meet forty or fifty years ago. Now, what and we're talking about items, of course, that have a long life. So. Right. It would be reasonable, given the refrigerator might last five, ten years, that you wouldn't want to pay all the cost up front if you were cash constrained. Exactly. So I think one of the issues that people forget is that when they rail against debt is that it's rational to use debt to finance purchases that are long live, that are capital goods, durables. Exactly. And if you, everybody knows that uh, uh, Henry Ford invented the automobile. In the 1930s, sort of. <laughs> sort of, right? But already by the 1940s, General Motors had eclipsed Ford uh, as the uh, the largest motor company in America. Do you know why? Basically because General Motors was willing to sell cars to people on credit where Henry Ford believed that people couldn't be trusted to buy a car on credit and that the proper way to buy a car was to save up enough <laughs> – Right, sure. <laughs> before you could get a uh, before you could get a car, well, it seems like it's a lot more useful to have a car to drive yourself to work to make money to pay off the debt rather than have to walk or take the bus to work until you can save up enough money to buy a car to drive yourself to work because it's a large capital purchase. Exactly, right? and very quickly, General Motors replaced Ford as the uh, number one uh, automaker in America, and that's been the circumstance ever since. But that was the driving factor. Now. Other people who are more alarmed about the trend in debt point to rising debt as a – you say the sky is falling. They point to rising debt as a measure of uh, – that we're living beyond our means. Uh, what's your take on those, those claims? Uh, well, as I suggested earlier, 40 or 50 years ago, consumers were making all kinds of uses of debt. They were furnishing their houses with – installment loans for furniture stores. They were buying appliances on, on time. They were buying cars on time. They were buying pianos on time. Singer, on time uh, meaning that on they time paid a monthly payment. A monthly payment, what we call an installment loan. Basically, what we've seen since then is the credit cards have simply substituted for a lot of, uh, a lot of those old transactions. I was stunned. I'll, I'll admit, when I first started on this research project, I was expecting to find what the conventional wisdom was, is that Americans are out of control and uh, overwhelmed by debt and that they just can't control themselves. If you look at the actual data, though, um, in a way, the best ways of measuring it, what you see is that the effect when it comes to consumer debt all this growth in uh, credit card debt, which is huge, there's no doubt about it, we've got an amazing amount of credit card debt, has come 100% as a substitution from those other forms of consumer credit. So no longer do you buy a refrigerator by paying $50 a month. You put it in your, on your credit card and you pay it off. No longer you pay do the, you, you pay the credit card you pay the credit card. $40 a month right. because it's a lower rate of interest. It's a lower rate of yeah. interest, exactly. No, uh, um, and no longer, if you have a car repair, do you go down to the uh, personal finance company and have to borrow $4,000 and pay it all off at once because the cost of underwriting the loan, you have to borrow more than you might need. Put it on your credit card, pay it off when you uh, uh, get back to work. And so what we've seen is the growth in credit card credit has been a substitution from all these other motley forms of credit that consumers have had in the past. And the reason why they've done it is because although people th – you think of credit cards as being expensive forms of credit, they really are much less expensive than um, a, a, a loan from – you know, a, a loan that you got when you bought a refrigerator or a personal finance company loan or whatever. And it has the additional benefit of unhooking – the credit transaction from the goods transaction, which not only allows you to force pe the, uh, the lenders to compete on the lending transaction, you can go online and you can buy on Amazon or you can buy somewhere else. You can make uh, the, the, uh, the uh, sellers compete 
uh, on the product price. On, right. a, on the product price, right? You unhook those two things, and so consumers get a better deal with the product and a better deal with the credit. Well, it's more transparent, and it also allows specialization. People are better at keeping track of loans, specialize in that, drive down through competition. We hope the the margin on the on the in, the interest rate, and similarly, people are good at making refrigerators and cars compete on making them cheaper and exactly. On the and one of the unfortunate and one of the unacknowledged but unfortunate things about the credit freeze is unfortunately we're seeing a rolling back of the clock uh which is one of the one of the it used to be what a, a one device that a lot of people especially lower income people would use was a layaway plan and as we were discussing I earlier explain what that is because a layaway plan if you're under the age but, of i don't know what it is <laughs> 40 probably you you've never you, you don't, might have heard of it, right. but, but it was common in the old right. days. Right. Basically, on a layaway plan, you would um, pay for the goods in installment payments before you could get it, right? And they'd so lay it away for you. They'd, they'd put it on lay the shelf it away. and say, this one's yours. This one's yours, and yeah. you have to pay us you know, $20 a month, and if you make all those payments at the end of the time, you, uh, you, you can get it, right? It was basically Henry Ford's model of how you had to buy a car, which is but you they would kept buy a layaway. Of, yeah, they kept track of the and savings. They kept yeah. track of it. For, we've gotten rid of layaway. Why? Because people would rather have the goods, strangely enough, yeah, uh, and so they can use it rather than having to pay for it in installments first. So, uh, so we got rid of layaway plans. And, and f- we we got ri- they always wanted to have the good first, but the reason right. we got rid of it is because the innovation of credit cards. Because allowed, the innovation yeah. of credit cards uh, um, empowered those lower income consumer consumers who were forced to rely on layaway in the past. Now could get access to credit cards on a uh, on a on a very uh, competitive basis. Reports came out this fall that companies like Sears, Kmart, during the, the Christmas season this past fall, were bringing back layaway. Why? Because the credit crunch meant that consumers were unable to get access to credit cards. They were unable to use their credit cards, and uh, and so we brought back layaway. We've seen reports that the credit crunch has caused middle-income uh, consumers to start using pawn shops again because they are uh, – in, in small business people are using pawn shops because uh, they can't get access to unsecured credit and credit cards on a competitive basis. We've seen reports that middle-class people are using payday lenders because uh, uh, lenders are, are afraid to extend credit to people. That's the real cost when you come in and you start saying people have too much credit card credit uh, or you're concerned about how people are using credit cards, some people will end up going without credit. But what a lot of people are going to end up doing is having much less attractive forms of credit. They're going to be forced into pawn shops, layaway plans, payday lenders, personal finance lenders, and even Tony Soprano uh, is willing to uh, uh, to offer you some credit if you can't get it anywhere else. And so what we're what we we need what we should recognize is the way in which access to credit cards and credit on that sort of way has been an empowering um, uh, opportunity for people. Uh, and the way it's been empowering is by giving them what uh, uh, this choice as opposed to all those other choices that they used to be limited to. Now, the um, some people would argue in the, in the old days, you know, I would get two or three offers of a credit card in the mail every day. Mm-hmm. I haven't gotten many of those lately, I've noticed. They seem to have dropped off, which is this <laughs> phenomenon you're talking about that right. that consumer credit markets are um, struggling. Talk about what, how we know that's true uh, and what perspective people have on credit card companies. I mean a lot of people think that credit card companies are, are predatory, that they, they, you know, they send you this envelope with this – teaser opportunity, this wonderful – sometimes you get frequent flyer miles up front and the next thing you know, you're deep in debt. And so I think a lot of people view the issuers of credit as some – as a negative – you're portraying it as a very positive. But first talk about the – the um, this issue of credit card markets right now. A lot of things you read in the paper occasionally at least I, I found them very strange but maybe you have a different perspective, you know, that – when uh, Paulson was Secretary of the Treasury, he was worried about credit card markets freezing up re- with the argument that uh, these these credit card loans used to be bundled together akin to the mortgages that were being sold. And these, cr- these securities are being issued back by credit card um, uh, loans to, to individuals. It seems like a good thing 
that we have less of that. It seems like we maybe had too much of that. Do you think we had too much of it? Uh, and then comment on the role of credit card companies. Uh, well, it, it's always been the case. And, 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 and sorry to interrupt. So this this these stories of payday loans coming back and and um, pawn shops are people losing their credit cards now? Or are they are they just not using them? I mean, what what do we know about what's actually going on? Four questions. As long as uh, uh, right, there's a lot there, but uh, uh, but. but but as long as there has been credit, there have been people who have gotten into trouble with credit who, uh, and uh, have gotten in over their heads. Um, in the uh, 19 – around the turn of the century, 1910s, 1920s, uh, there were reports in New York City that the average person might have as many as uh, 12 pawn shop tickets in their pocket uh, during the winter when the, uh, when the mills were closed down because uh, of you know, water power uh, um, and that sort of thing. Um, and so there's always been people who have been living on the edge with credit, whether it's pawn shops, whether it's payday lenders today or whatever the case Multiple may be. Multiple credit cards. Multiple credit cards, absolutely. And there are certainly um, – uh, and there's no doubt that uh, credit card lenders, uh, some credit card lenders have been um, – have not treated consumers very well uh, and that uh, it's clear that uh, um, the disclosures are not as always user-friendly uh, as they should be, whether that's because of uh, regulation or some other reason is another question. But certainly it'd be nice if uh, consumers could uh, understand their credit cards better. Credit cards are certainly a much more complicated product now than they used to be, but that's for a reason. Credit cards in the 1970s were a very simple product. They were a simple product that had an 18% interest rate, a $40 annual fee, um, and didn't give you any uh, um, benefits like frequent flyer miles or cash back or anything like that. Today, credit cards have a lot of different terms, but they also have lower interest rates. And you can look at the Federal Reserve if you don't believe that. The interest rates are lower. Annual fees have disappeared on credit cards. We've got this great proliferation of benefits uh, uh, for consumers. Um, and so they've become more complicated, but they've become more complicated because of consumer demand uh, more than, than anything else. And uh, um, with complexity comes the possibility that some consumers are going to make a mistake. What we also know is that consumers, they make mistakes. There's no doubt about it. Um, they get confused. But when you look at how consumers behave, they kind of figure out what's going on. So, for instance, um, if I were to ask you what the interest rate on your credit card is, or anybody listening to this, or a lot of people listening to this, my guess would be they'd have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. Why do we have no idea? I usually pay mine on time. So and do I. And it never, therefore, gets troublesome. Right. And it's not even a factor, really, for you when you're deciding which credit card you want to carry, right? Yeah. What you are aware of is how quickly you might accrue frequent flyer miles. You're aware of what the annual fee is, uh, whether you get cash back, right? These are the kind of things that matter to you because you're what we call a transactional user of credit cards. where it's you pay for off the convenience. For yeah. the convenience and you pay it off every month, right? Well, it turns out that people who revolve on their credit cards – from one month to another, what we call a revolver, they are very aware of what their interest rate is. <laughs> and they shop very aggressively on what their interest rate is and shop for the best deal. Uh, so we know that, that, that the, the fundamentals make sense in the sense that credit cards are more complicated. That can cause people more confusion. But people have uh, the incentives, and what we observe is that they actually act as we would expect, which is you shop on the margins that matter most to you. Um, yeah, I have to confess, Todd, that when I was younger, I was very aware of the interest rate. <laughs> <laughs> I was much less likely to pay it off uh, exactly. in, in my youth, uh, so that there's a confession. Oh, so what about the world of today? Do, do you – I mean this week, do, do you think there's a – do we have a problem in the credit card market? Um, I mean, is that what's causing the things that you're talking about, the, pay, the, the return of layaway, or is that just simply people who've made errors and now are stuck and are finding alternatives? From, from what I could tell, uh, getting systematic data um, has not been, uh, in, been easy, but all reports point to the idea that credit card lenders are tightening up. Um, 
and, and we see two things that happen, which is, uh, um, again, consumers, American consumers are often smarter than we give them credit for. Uh, to, they, 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 they get some sense of what's going on. So what we see over time is that when the uh, American economy starts slipping into a recession, consumers don't just walk like zombies right up to the cliff and fall off. What they do is they start planning for a recession, which is you start scaling back your purchases uh, uh, before you lose your job. You start saving more. You start throttling back, basically, right? So consumers are borrowing less, as, uh, as, as we know, because they expect rough times ahead. So they're not just foolish sort of lemmings uh, walking off a cliff. But we also know what seems to be the case is that credit card uh, uh, issuers and all lenders are aware that the economy is going soft also, that people are going to be losing their jobs. Well, um, when people lose their jobs, um, oftentimes they start – drawing down credit lines more often. So what you have is a, a concern if you're a credit card issuer that somebody might lose their job and all of a sudden start uh, um, borrowing more, right? So all of a sudden they've gone from being a very good risk who always pays their bill on times to a high risk because they've lost their job and they start uh, revolving with no, uh, with no knowledge of how they're going to repay it. So everything indicates and economic theory would suggest that uh, uh, creditors are probably scaling back whether that is a result of just anticipating slower economic times, the uh, credit crunch, uh, or both, um, I think it's difficult to, to, to tell. One thing you haven't mentioned is home equity. Uh, there was an explosion in lo- home equity lines of credit in the early part of this uh, decade, 2000 and I'd say, what is it, two to four, three to five, around in there. Um, Surely some of that was not well um, thought out or at least was counting on some appreciation that didn't happen. But you know, people were trying to live uh, happily with – they were trying to consume some of the equity, the appreciation of their homes and that disappeared. And so now we're in a little bit of a problem over it. That's exactly right, which is uh, – what we know is that, uh, um, again, co- consumers plan ahead to some extent in the long term as well, which is that if your wealth goes up, say, either because stocks go up or the value of your house goes up, you're, you're wealthier in the long run. Um, your listeners may be familiar with what is called the permanent income hypothesis, which is that. the idea – I don't think we ever talked about it explicitly. It's, it's the idea that uh, – Milton the, Friedman's idea. It's Milton Friedman's idea. Um, sometime, um, um, and basically the idea is that, uh, uh, that when you're planning your life, you try to sort of average out your consumption – um, over the span of your life. And so you don't – if you're making $100,000 this year and only expect to have $20,000 a year when you're retiring, you don't spend all 100000 now. You live like a king now <laughs> and live, live like a pauper later. Exactly. You try to smooth out your consumption over your lifespan. So if your wealth goes up, if your, if your stocks go up or if your home goes up, um, that makes you wealthier in the future when you sell your home or you sell your stocks. If they stay – up. If they stay up, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. But what we know then is that um, people have expected that those would stay up and especially homes, obviously. So what people did was banking on the idea that their homes are going to be worth more in, in the future, in the indefinite future. Um, they went out and they borrowed against that. And what we know uh, from looking at the evidence or what seems to be the case from looking at the evidence is that when your home goes up in value, people in general tend to spend spend more of that. They spend as much as six to eight percent of the appreciation of their homes today, either through home equity loans or borrowing against it with credit cards or whatever the case may be. For stocks and bonds or you know financial assets, it's a lower percentage. It may only be two, three, four percent uh, that people uh, people spend. So when the wealth increases in homes, more people become wealthy. But people also seem to sort of uh, lay it out there a little bit more, Why, whether that's because they think that they've traditionally thought that increases in home prices were more permanent yeah, or whether because homes are uh, more widely held as a source of wealth among more people in society. You know, in lower income, people tend to have what we uh, tend to – would just tend to consume more of that uh, um, uh, because to smooth their income versus their wealth, we, we don't know. But uh, but it but uh, there you people draw down their wealth, but as you noted, it seems like they drew it down in in an overzealous um, sort of way. And yeah, and the consequence of that, of course, is a 
couple of things. The higher it leads to problems that extend beyond just the issuers of those of those lines of credit, and uh, obviously the issuers of those lines of credit also had the expectation that home prices were going to do pretty well or they wouldn't have made the loans. It's important always to remember there's usually two sides of the transaction. Exactly, and we could talk in more depth about foreclosures later, but uh, but this is undoubtedly a major contributor to uh, uh, the dramatic rise of, uh, of foreclosures that, uh, that, that, that we've seen is people drawing down their equity um, uh, or, uh, um, or interest-only loans that cause them to not build up equity and uh, those, those factors. Yeah, we'll get to that, but before we do, I want to talk about bankruptcy. Uh, again, I'm fortunate enough not to have a lot of personal experience with <laughs> bankruptcy law, and I'm sure some of our listeners are in that group. So I don't really understand how it works. I think most of us have a vague idea that you take out you know, a bunch of credit cards and you can't pay them back either because uh, you lose your job, uh, you just get overextended, you make too many promises you can't keep, uh, or a whole bunch of things which could lead to bankruptcy, uh, the house, you value your house falling and, and you're not paying back your home mortgage loan. Um, what are the consequences when you, when you, de- quote, declare bankruptcy? Most – I think some of us have an impression it's a do-over. You just get a, get a clean slate. You get to start over and uh, too bad for the lenders. Is that true? How has it changed over time? Because I know there have been some revisions in the law recently. So how has uh, how is our treatment in America of bankruptcy uh, changed? What's, what's the whole idea of it? Is it a good thing, a bad thing? Um, in, in, in general, uh, to, to some extent, the idea that it's a do-over is kind of accurate. Um, what you have to understand, though, is that there's, there's two types of credit or two types of debt, and bankruptcy impacts them in very different ways. One, time of, one type of debt is what we call secured debt. That is your house, a car loan. There's um, collateral. Something like there's collateral, right? If you don't pay the loan, the lender can come and repossess the car or foreclose on the house. Bankruptcy doesn't help you very much with respect to that because even if you were able to discharge your, your mortgage debt, the lender would still be allowed to come and take your house. So as the, as the law stands right now with respect to your house or your car or that sort of thing, bankruptcy will allow you to stop the repo man, but it won't allow you a do-over with respect to your car loan. I'm sorry. I'm confused. Let's explain again. I, let's say I, I buy a house. Uh, I borrowed the money to pay the house. And I can't make the payments anymore, and I want, I declare bankruptcy. Right. What happens to me? I lose my house. Uh, you lo- if you if you don't make your payments, you lose your house. Eventually, it may it, take eventually. a while. Eventually, right, right, right. And so, what bankruptcy will do will be to slow down the process and give you an opportunity to try to get your act together. There are some strategies you have in bankruptcy to try to uh, to cure the situation, but in the end. You have to pay the full amount as the law stands right now. You have to pay the full amount at the contracted for interest rate in order to keep your house. And that kind of goes along with the idea that it's secured debt. And, and of course, in exchange for giving collateral, you get a lower interest rate on the, on front, the front end. For right. the people who keep their deal. But, right. but let's say I lose my house. Uh, I, go, right. I can't make my, my, my payments. I lose my house. The bank right. takes it. Uh, I still owe the money to the bank. But that is what is wiped out, I assume, by a bankruptcy proceeding. Exactly. If or you, does it vary right. by state? Uh, um, you that you can wipe that out exactly, and and, the, and so the do-over amount applies to what we call unsecured debt, which is something like credit card debt um, is the most typical one. Medical debts are unsecured debts. Um, they don't come back and get the cure because they right because they don't right exactly antibiotics. I'm saying I'm coming back for the pills. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, and the difference there is that there is no collateral behind that. And basically, what bankruptcy does is gives you a fresh start and allows you, by and large, to wipe that out uh, with some limitations. There's other debts that are unsecured debts, such as student loans. Um, and it's always depressing for my students to tell them that even though student loans are unsecured debts, there are particular provisions in the bankruptcy code that says you can't wipe out your student loans except in very, very limited conditions. Um, what does that mean? Let's say um, – let's, let's take again all three cases. So we have secured loans like a house or a car. We have unsecured loans, which could be uh, a credit card, but we have these unsecured loans like student loans that have a slightly different status, you're saying. So – I've got. Let's have all three. I've got a house. I've got student loans, and I've got credit cards. I lose my job. 
I can't make any of those payments. The envelopes keep piling up. I don't pay any of them, and I'm done. Uh, in the old days, I think you might tell me when this is. You go to jail, right? <laughs> right? You made some promises. You didn't right. keep them. Um, but w- what is the what is the declaration of bankruptcy do for me? Uh, that, that's that's different than than just not paying. You, you're right. In the old days, you did go to jail. Uh, and in the United States, up until the 1830s, uh, a lot of states still had debtors' prisons because they thought of consumer debt as being a form of fraud. Interestingly, they treated consumers differently from businesses, uh, which is that the idea that businesses could reorganize um, has a long history in law. But but it, but it was uh, debtors' prisons in a, for a long time. Throughout the 19th century, our de facto bankruptcy system was if your debts got too uh, too big, you just you know moved you moved you yeah. moved out to the frontier and just ditched your creditors, right? Uh, right. Um, and that was essentially our bankruptcy system. Um, obviously, that won't work in a modern society. So what we have as a trade off now is uh, um, we 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 have a central goal of the fresh start. Um, and for a long time, even today, after the bank, including the fact that bankruptcy laws were tightened a few years ago, the United States has by far the most generous bankruptcy system in the world, or in the history of the world, as far as we can tell. It, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the uh, the fresh start, why is that? Basically, I think it reflects our 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 ethos is a place of second chances. A lot of people who moved here were running from creditors back in Europe. Uh, it reflects our, our spirit of entrepreneurship and risk taking. That uh, we want people to uh, to take risks, uh, even if it results uh, it results in failure. Um, and you know, it also just reflects, I think, in some sense, just our our, our charitable nature that we're a uh, you know we forgive people who make mistakes. Well, that's nice, except that the consequence of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not going to weigh in on that, but the easier you make it to walk away from your debt. The harder it is to get credit, so the, the more cautious it's a. Um, um, I think it was an application of the Coase theorem. Right? There's a little, there's a. You make it. You punish the. If you punish the the imprudent borrower, then people are much more eager to lend credit because they can count on that punishment to deter fraud or bad luck or incur courage caution. If you reward the borrower. Or don't punish the borrower. There's less deterrence. The lender knows that, and that presumably is going to change the terms of the deal up front, right? But but let's first just uh, again just to get to the logistics because I, again I don't understand them. So I've got the house, I've got my credit card balance, and I've got my student loan, and I lose my job, and the envelopes keep showing up. What if I don't pay? Period. What happens? The the short answer is you lose the house. You walk away from the credit card debt, and you are forced to uh, pay off the student loans with your uh, money after bankruptcy. I mean, once I get a job down the down the road. Once you get a job down the road, right? And the uh, and basically what it is is the student loan debt is said to be non dischargeable, which it means that they can come after you for your post-bankruptcy earnings. They put a lien on my earnings? They could put a lien on your earnings. They could garnish your earnings. They can do anything. Explain what those are, by the way, with a lien and, a, and garnish. Basically, it allows them to uh, to go out and seize your bank account. Or um, in some situations, they can intercept tax return uh, uh, refunds, all, the, all these different sorts of things. They can basically take matters into their own hand. And the idea is, is that for... Most debt, uh, bankruptcy creates sort of a, uh, a, a cleavage in time. Uh, it's almost as if you kind of die and are reborn as a new person. Uh, that's the idea of credit card debt being discharged, which is, you know, uh, pre-bankruptcy, Russ Roberts, uh, um, uh, you know, disappears. Uh, and post-bankruptcy, Russ Roberts II emerges from the ashes without any credit card debt. If you want to keep your house, though, you have to... Pay your pay your loan, uh, and there are some debts where you jump the gap. Now, why is that? Well, as I was saying earlier, jump the gap. Jump the gap between pre-bankruptcy Russ Roberts and post-bankruptcy Russ Roberts. Why do we have those rules? Well, basically, the idea is you you were suggesting it earlier. The fresh start, as I as I was mentioning earlier, is a an idea that's very deeply rooted 
in uh, the American economic system and the American psyche, this idea of, of, a, of a discharge uh, for, for people that's really somewhat unique in the world. But we balance that against other social goals. So, for instance, our view is that if you have borrowed money, especially government-backed, uh, uh, you know, government-insured uh, student loans, and you go to law school or you go to college or you go to medical school, and you should be able to get a good job, you have to pay that off. That's up to you to pay and not the taxpayers. So we basically say, we're not going to allow you to rack up $200,000 in student loans to go to medical school and then file bankruptcy and walk away from it. And so the whole system of bankruptcy then is a balance between this desire to further the fresh start on one hand, but make sure that people are not abusing or taking advantage of the system on the other hand. But if I walk away from my credit card loan, um, what are the consequences? You're uh, at the fresh start, meaning if if I do get a job down the road, I'm not liable for those balances if I've declared bankruptcy. Is there any consequence? You'll take a big old hit on your credit uh, score, obviously. Um, But the main consequence – It's going to be harder to borrow money in the future. It's going to be harder for you to borrow money in the future. So when you say the gap in time, the cleavage in time, the new Russ Roberts – Unfortunately, carries with him his. I want to make sure that I got the ghost that right. of old. Yeah, okay, Roberts. good. Okay, you don't have the credit card debt, but you still have uh, the memory of the it. memory yeah. of it in right. the system. Okay, right. just want to make sure I got that straight. But the main cost is the one you suggested earlier, which is the more generous you make the fresh start, the uh, the more generous you make the bankruptcy system, the more susceptible to fraud and abuse you make the system, the more everybody else has to pay for it. Uh, if that's not a risk that can be tailored to a particular borrower, and usually it's not. Everybody pays more. So a more generous bankruptcy system – I'll give you an example. There was a study done of – or sort of a, um, an analysis done of Memphis, Tennessee, which has traditionally been the bankruptcy capital of America. Really? Yes. I uh, was born in Memphis. So you don't know that, but it, who, who knew? Who knew? And it's for a variety of reasons that, that, that we could go into, but it's sort of a, a unique sort of place. But, uh, but about 4 or 5 percent of the residents of Memphis file bankruptcy every year. And that's a high number. That's a high number, right. Four to five percent of the population filed bankruptcy. Now, what are the implications of that in Memphis? Well, in Memphis, uh, um, they, uh, um, they won't take an out-of-state check basically uh, in most places because they're afraid you're going to bounce a check. If you want to buy a used car in Memphis, the down payment on a used car is the wholesale price of the car. Why? Because they're afraid that if they extend you credit, you're going to be so likely to file bankruptcy that they won't even be able to recover the price that they paid for the car. So they basically reclaiming collateral is expensive. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, And so there's a whole uh, uh, you know there's a whole host of factors that but if you increase the protection for people after the fact, you make it more expensive and more risky to lend to them before the fact. And there's economic theory tells you that, and there are decades of uh, empirical studies that uh, that support that. There's always some price. There's never a free lunch when it comes to uh, uh, to, to these factors. So, how has bankruptcy law changed? It was recently revised in 2005. W- what was the political impetus for that change, and what direction did we go? The political impetus for that change was um, it, we had a, a major overhaul of the bankruptcy system in 1978. Uh, the response to that was Why? that – and, um, and what did we do? In, in 1978, we substantially uh, uh, loosened our bankruptcy laws. Um, that sort of the onset of the modern consumer credit economy, which really arose in the 1950s and 60s, as uh, people moved out to the suburbs and bought new houses and bought furniture and bought cars and sort of the 1950s and 60s is really the threshold time, you know, the, the key time in American society where our where consumers started using credit in a very major sort of way. They looked at that um, and said, we need to modernize the bankruptcy system. And the idea was they would substantially loosen the bankruptcy system for consumers uh, to get access to it. The result was that beginning in 1980, there were about – Making it – declaring bankruptcy cheaper and easier. Exactly, right, because they were concerned – you know, so many more people had so much more credit, which was true than it was in in the past, and more people were going to get in trouble and they needed uh, a a helping hand out, right, help up. Um, A lot of people were no longer self-reliant, right? I mean this was the agricultural economy um, really – 
um, you know, shrunk a lot uh, uh, during this period. So you didn't have as many people who were sort of self-reliant and that sort of thing as well. So they thought we needed a more, a more modern bankruptcy system that was more borrower-friendly. Um, the result was that in 1980, we had about 250,000 bankruptcies uh, every year. Personal bankruptcies. Personal bankruptcies. And by uh, 2005, we had about a million and a half bankruptcies a year. And so what we saw was during the 1980s and 1990s, really the greatest period of uh, prosperity in American history, um, uh, low inflation, low uh, unemployment rates, uh, increases, steady, sustainable increases uh, 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 throughout most of that period in the stock market, in the housing market. Uh, everything pointed to Americans being more prosperous than ever, yet the bankruptcy filing rate quintupled during that period. The other thing we saw was experience told us that – Hang on. It quintupled, but it, it wasn't very high. It's important to remember. Right. Quintupling sounds, oh my gosh. Right. But what was the raw number again? It How went from 250000 a year to about a million and a half a year. Okay. So um, it was getting to be a pretty big number uh, yeah. about uh, – uh, um, um, yeah, so uh, – or at least the concern was – basically the, the concern trend wasn't was – wasn't good. Yeah, the trend wasn't good and the trend didn't seem to fit with uh, uh, economic reality, which is you what would expect bankruptcies there? to rise um, when the economy goes bad. And in fact, what we've seen over the past year or two is the economy has gone bad, bankruptcies have started to rise again. But uh, um, But during – so basically Congress looked around and they said – you know, we want to preserve bankruptcy relief for those who need it, but we're concerned that bankruptcy has too often become a, a mechanism for fraud and abuse for people, that they were gaming the system. So they tightened up the laws, and basically what they did was they put new restrictions and new accountabilities built into the system. So a lot of things were just very simple was, things. This was when? 2005. So 78, we had a loosening. We saw then a period of increased bankruptcy. Right. Congress reacted in 2005 with the right. tightening. What, was, the, what were the provisions that were and, tightened? And the way to think about it, again, is what we were talking about earlier, right? We want to help people, but we don't want to be, make it a system of fraud and abuse because we all pay. Uh, if there's people who are walking away from debt that they could pay, the rest of us pick up the debt, uh, pick up the uh, the bill for that. So what they did in 2005 were a couple things. Some of them were just very common sense sorts of things. They started making you file tax returns when you filed your uh, bankruptcy, uh, what they call schedules. It used to be almost completely on the honor system. And what we knew was a lot of people were just not telling the truth about um, uh, you know, how much money they had. Repaying. Their yeah. capability repayment, repaying. You know, put, the, put the money in a, a shoebox under the bed <laughs> and just don't tell the court. Nobody will know about it. Uh, people were saying that they didn't have bank accounts, even though they made seventy or $80,000 a year. Uh, and so a lot of it was just to put some accountability in the system. One of the other big innovations was the, uh, to require those who make above their state median income, adjusted for family size, uh, who could repay a substantial portion of their debt in bankruptcy, were, are now required to do so, basically means testing. Now, so not a full do-over. Not a full do-over, right, a, uh, a limited do-over. And what they would be required to do, there's two ways of filing bankruptcy. One is the full do-over, the, uh, what we call Chapter 7 bankruptcy. The other is Chapter 13, where you enter into a uh, repayment plan um, going forward. Traditionally, the reason you file Chapter 7 versus Chapter 13 is Chapter 7 is the do-over. Take all your property and take all your debt, put them in a bucket basically, um, and give it out to your creditors and you – There's not enough to go around. Too bad for them. Too bad for them, right. Um, and so what it, the way you can think of it is it was a mechanism for protecting your future income but not your, your wealth. Um, in practice, you could protect a lot of your wealth because of the way in which the laws work. But that's the basic idea. Chapter 13 was a system that would allow you to protect your wealth but not your income. So you wouldn't have to give up any of your property. You just have to agree. As long as you were covering your mortgage. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. And they wouldn't make an allowance for Or if you owned it outright. Right. Exactly. So that you wouldn't be – right. You wouldn't be required to give up uh, your uh, – um, so in Chapter 7, for instance, if you own your car outright, you might have to give up your car. uh, To pay off a fraction of your – Exactly right. Where in Chapter 13, if you own your car outright, you get to keep it. In, in exchange, what you'd have to do is give up your, some of your future income to repay your creditors. But what we found out was that because of the way the system worked, a lot of high-income people could uh, go into Chapter 7 and 
uh, because of the way what we call property exemption rules operate, could get out of basically having to repay anything. So one of the things the bill does – 2005 bill. The 2005 bill did was push people who have high income to dedicate a portion of their income to repaying their debt because it was believed that a lot of high-income people or at least some – a substantial number of high-income people were walking away from debts that they, that they could, have, uh, could have repaid. And so as a result, in 2005 or 2006, before the housing market collapsed, uh, I assume bankruptcies fell from that 1.5 right. number down. Well, it's actually uh, a sort of a, a sort of an interesting story about the extent to which consumers respond to incentives, which it was about one and a half million. Um, then in 2005, the uh, filing numbers all of a sudden went the, – the bill was enacted in April but didn't go into effect until October. So off that one and a half million uh, filings base, in the it went into effect on October seventeenth, two thousand and five. The two week period preceding October seventeenth, two thousand and five, f- um, half a million people filed bankruptcy under the under the terms of the, <laughs> uh, uh, under the old terms regime. of the old regime. Yeah, and the week before it went into effect, three hundred and fifty thousand people filed bankruptcy under the old scheme before the laws got tightened, uh, and then it dropped from. Two million then, because you added five, you had a half right. a million to the a million and a half, dropped to six hundred and fifty thousand in two thousand and six, about uh, eight hundred thousand in two thousand and seven, a substantial drop, um, even if you count for people who may have pre-filed. And in two thousand and eight, it looks like it's about a, a drop million. relative to the peak. A drop yeah. relative to the peak, right, right. And so, and uh, um, and last year was about a million. And so, what we're seeing, and I think one of the reasons why, I think although there were some problems, we can think of bankruptcy reform as a uh, a success, at least in terms of what they hope to accomplish. Is bankruptcies are rising now again, but we would expect bankruptcies to rise. We want bankruptcy. And we've made a decision that we want bankruptcy for those who are in trouble. And now as the economy's gone south, bankruptcies will rise again. But we're not having that sort of anomaly that we had in the 80s and 90s where bankruptcies were skyrocketing even as the economy was uh, was booming. So I think we've we, – we struck a new balance between the fresh start and, and uh, um, sort of responsibility and limitations on it. And so far it seems to be working. My only quibble with your analysis there is the phrase we've made a decision in that – I try to stay away from that kind of language. There's really no it, we there and there's no it's, decision. It's sloppy the, the language. The political process has exactly. – a, a decision has emerged from the political process with changing the mix between those things. Exactly. Uh, yes, that's a, a very good, uh, a very good uh, caveat. The, the bill itself was um, passed with about 75 percent in both uh, the House and Senate. Uh, all Republicans voted for it and all centrist Democrats voted for it. The only ones who opposed it, you know, were uh, sort of uh, um, liber- liberal Democrats. Uh, from which I take away, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, they, they people by and large they were voting, I think, in a way that reflected the views of the country, uh, which is, in, in some sense, which is uh, um, they're balancing sort of responsibility against the fresh start, and yeah. they, and it was an ideological decision yeah. That's a very because it is, analysis. it's an art, not a science. Yeah. You know, it's an art, not a science, to think how we want to balance those competing goals. Um, I think the public choice side would be interesting. I don't know if you've looked at that at all. I assume you've really framed most of this discussion so far as a sort of a benevolent uh, <laughs> dictator who would try to weigh trade those off. I assume there's some there were some special interest influences there, either in the old regime and the revision. But we'll, be, we'll maybe say that for another time. Well, the, can I just say yeah, the sure. public choice factors are fascinating. Uh, and I've learned a lot about it. And in the book I'm writing on uh, on this, I've got a whole chapter dedicated to this. Basically, the way to think of it is bankruptcy lawyers have a vested interest in having more bankruptcies. And yeah. so they've always pushed for looser uh, laws. Creditors looser, have – Looser, more complicated laws. Looser, so more I complicated assume, yeah. laws, right. They want bankruptcies to be more plentiful and more expensive. Yeah. Creditors want to have less expensive and fewer bankruptcies. And so basically they push and pull against each other. Um, and over the broad expanse of American history, it, it, it crudely put – in the long run, they kind of balance each other out. And what the driving force seems to be – uh, within at least the center of gravity in Congress tends to be sort of ideological, which is uh, in the years the Democrats controlled Congress, there was sort of a uh, um, an ideology of favoring debtors. 
And when Republicans came into Congress in 1994, they drew back from some of that. So this is, I think, the way to think of bankruptcy reform is of a piece with welfare reform, which is is, is an effort to try, you know, a a different governing coalition with striking a different balance. Let's turn to uh, let's turn to the mortgage market. Um, we, we've talked on the show about the subprime mortgage problem, and most of the time we've talked about the foreclosure rate rising because of negative equity. That basically, when you bought a house with no money down, and when the price of the house fell unexpectedly, or as we mentioned in passing a minute ago, if you bought a house with some equity because you put money down, but you borrowed against the equity to which eliminated it, and then the price went down, that it's rational to walk away from your house uh, in that setting because you're investing in something that has a negative rate of return essentially by continuing to make your payments. Now, it's immoral <laughs> to walk away from your house in the sense that you made a promise to repay the loan. And I assume there – so there might be some conscience issues there. And I assume there are also uh, – this bankruptcy plays a role uh, as well, that that there could be consequences of – or lack of consequences if you walk away. But is that what's fundamentally going on as the default rate rises, that people don't – it's no longer in their self-interest to uh, keep their mortgage payments up? I think when it? push comes to shove, that is the uh, that's the the the, the root of the uh, of the the foreclosure crisis. Uh, um, it's a little more complicated than that. So let me just say a few say a few words about that. But I think that gets to the nub of nub of the issue, which is foreclosure is can result from three different factors. Uh, the first is just macroeconomic conditions. So the reason why we have a horrific foreclosure rate in Detroit, more than anything else, is simply there's no jobs in Detroit. Uh, and uh, um, in Ohio and Indiana. These places started turning down uh, and getting into trouble well before a lot of the subprime stuff uh, hit the fan. We know historically when hurricane comes through, foreclosures are left in its wake. Um, and so I think that – so that's part of it but only in just uh, local areas and the foreclosures started rising and the real estate problems started rising well before the economy in general went down. So I don't think that can explain really what we're seeing. So there's really then only other two other factors that, that can explain it. One would be uh, distress caused by um, changes in interest rates, you know, adjustable rate mortgages and that sort of thing. Now, what we know this is that that does seem to be a bit of a factor. And one thing that's not generally known is that adjustable rate mortgages are not a creation of of subprime lending. In 1984, 61% of the mortgages written in the United States that year were adjustable rate mortgages. Uh, in 1988, it was in the in 50% or 56%. What we see is that over time, when the spread between short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates gets wider, so that the interest rate on an adjustable rate mortgage um, gets much lower than the interest rate on a fixed rate mortgage, consumers flip over and they start using adjustable rate mortgages more until that gap closes. So why didn't that cause a, a crisis in the past? Well, the primary reason is that in the 80s and 90s – A crisis sorry, in the past because uh, when interest rates climb back up? Right, right. Well, the, in the past um, – the fact that there were a I lot of expected to. I'm sorry. In the past, um, the fact that there there were a lot of adjustable rate mortgages kicking around out there, but they didn't seem to cause a huge foreclosure crisis like we have now. And important to mention, those adjustable rate mortgages start off with a teaser rate usually that was low to start with. Then they would adjust upward, but they would still be relatively low. Uh, they would rise toward and then be at roughly maybe equal to a longer-term interest rate, but th- that right. wouldn't normally cause a problem. People would anticipate right. that. Right. And, the, and the teaser rate phenomenon seems to have been overstated. Uh, most of the the empirical evidence indicates, all the studies have been done on this, is that most of the loans that defaulted on teaser rates defaulted in the first 12 months uh, before there was any reset. They were just badly underwritten loans. Um, but if interest rates are rising, Right, but if interest rates are rising, right. And what we're seeing that's disturbing is a huge difference in the foreclosure rates, um, not just between prime and subprime, but more importantly now, at least in my view, is between adjustable rate and fixed rate, which is that adjustable rate prime mortgages are going into foreclosure at a rapidly increasing rate. 
um, and so there is, does seem to be some factor that adjustable rates, whether prime or subprime, is a risk factor. Why has that turned out to be a problem now and it wasn't in the past? Well, I think in the past what it was was the adjustable rate mortgages were, by being lower, were basically leading down fixed rate mortgages, right? So there was a long secular trend in the 80s and 90s of lower interest rates. The problem that happened this time around was from 2000 to 2004, uh, adjustable rate mortgages were pushed down so artificially low by Federal Reserve monetary policy right. that rather than fixed rate mortgages coming down to adjustable rate mortgages, adjustable rate mortgages went up to where fixed rate mortgages were. And so I think some people got caught in that uh, in that whiplash. And what we see is it's affecting prime as well as uh, is subprime borrowers. But, but I, why do you need that? It would seem to me that the real right. problem is the declining price of houses. I buy a house – I buy a house with 20% down, and it goes down by 10%, which would be a, an unusual event in our lifetime in most markets. Right. I still have 10% equity. I buy a house with 5% down, and it goes down by 10%, which, although it's unusual in our lifetime, is not unusual in the last two years. And as a result, I have negative equity, prime or subprime. And I, right. it seems to me, and this is what I want, want you to tell me, it seems to me that, that the only thing that keeps – a prime customer in that negative equity house is the stigma and future costs of bankruptcy. Right. Right? I- exactly right. Um, why? But there- others are saying, well, I, I, there may be some stigma. There right. may be some costs. But if my house has gone down 25% right. and I had 5% equity, I, I might just walk away. It, it, and, and to start with your, for your first question is why does it matter? It matters because there there are there do seem to be some people out there who want to keep their houses, but their interest rates have gone up as interest rates have gone up. Now, that it, it may be that that alone is not enough of a problem. It may be that you have to have the second factor, right, which is that if your interest rate has gone up um, and you can't make the payments anymore, if you had positive equity, you could sell the house. Or right? you try harder you to could, make the payments. Or try that's harder to make the payments worry. or refinance, right? And yeah. so um, – and, uh, um, and that's exactly what people did. What you're pointing to is the idea of, of negative equity. And the way we can think of this, you know, related to what we were just saying, is you could think of it as uh, um, your house as an option. It's being like a financial option. It is a call option in the sense that if it goes up in value, you can uh, – if you can't make the payments, you can sell or refinance, right? Um, and uh, and that's what what a lot of people did when house prices are rising. When it goes down an option, you could think of it as a put option to give it back to the bank um, and, uh, and and walk away. What economic theory tells us is that uh, um, uh, that if the value of exercising that option goes up or the cost of exercising it goes down, you become more likely to exercise the option. So to give an example, several states, about eight, have what are called anti-deficiency laws or non-recourse laws. And in those handful of states, California and Arizona being two big ones, um, if you walk away from your mortgage, the remedies of the bank, what the bank's allowed to do is to take back your house. But they're not allowed to sue you for anything more that you might owe. Oh, no so, matter how wealthy I no am, no matter how wealthy you are, that's e- part of that part of the that's part of the state healthy. law. So, if you bought a house for four hundred thousand dollars and it goes down to three hundred thousand dollars, and you live in California and you walk away, all they can do is take back the bank or take back the house, sell for three hundred thousand dollars, and that anti deficiency law is basically like a get out of jail free card. That's the do over thing. Yeah, that's the do over thing. And what we know from economic uh, um, studies is that uh, um, the estimate is that um, when house prices fall, people in, a, in an area with an anti-deficiency law are two to three times more likely to walk away from their house than they would be if the lender was allowed to come after them for, uh, for that additional $100,000. So you try harder. Example. So you try harder. To now, keep your payments going. Now, I would disagree in, in, in some sense. Right, well, I won't disagree, but you said that, it, that it's immoral, and certainly it is immoral uh, uh, in some sense to not keep your contract. But, it's, but uh, um, I think 
Another way to think of it is, is just uh, what is rational behavior? And it reminds me of a conversation I had with my wife recently where I was saying uh, – where I was talking about this and people walking away from their homes when they're underwater. And she says, oh, that's ridiculous. We we would never do that. We would never just get rid of our house, right? Because you know we're it's committed wrong. to her. It's yeah, wrong, we right? We made a deal. And I said, so – uh, so, uh, um, what if somebody walked up and knocked on our door today and offered us $3 million for our house? Would we walk away from our house then? <laughs> right. And, and the answer is yes. Right. So, uh, in some sense, uh, you know, if you just think of people as being rational, uh, that thinking of it as a call option and a put option. I, I just don't, so, I don't see the analogy, you to, don't the see moral, the analogy. Not to the morality <laughs> issue, but, but I do, see, I right. do take your point. Right. That I think people respond rationally to the incentives, but I, right. I want to make sure I understood the previous conversation about bankruptcy law. Right. The non-recourse, non what's it called, deficiency? Uh, yeah, anti-deficiency. Anti-deficiency uh, clause, which is in eight states. Right. That means in the other forty-two and a bit, depending on what you call state, the rest of the country, uh, if I walk away from my mortgage. And my, I borrowed four hundred thousand. Uh, let's say with no money down. Yep. It was a four hundred thousand dollar house. I borrowed four hundred thousand. The price goes down to three hundred thousand. As you say, the market value is perceived. I don't literally right. know that, right. but I perceive my house is suddenly only worth three hundred. And I stop making the payments in one of those other forty-two states. I eventually have to pay back that one hundred thousand if the bank decides to sue you. Uh, and often, you know, and and so it's a threat. Basically, the banks have the threat of suing you for the so additional hundred thousand. So in the workout, meaning right. if there's right. a negotiation about my situation, either right? Because I've lost my job, or I could just say I don't feel like paying. Right. 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 I, I might try to get my mortgage. Um, Written right. down a bit. Exactly. So the bank might say, you know, one of the problems we have now is people trashing their houses when they go into foreclosure. And the bank might say, you know, let's cut a deal. Rather than forcing us to bring a foreclosure action against you uh, and, uh, um, you know, driving you into bankruptcy or something like that, and you getting upset and trashing the house, let's just cut a deal. You give the keys back to us. And we let you walk, right? So trashing the house is the, is the flip side of the, <laughs> the, flip side. Of the, of the anti-deficiency, <laughs> That's right? That's right. That's right. right. The, the bank says, I'll th I'm threatening you um, with um, – Foreclosure. With right. foreclosure and, and I'm going to – and then I'm going to oh, – you're going to owe me $100,000 down the road. Right. My counter – Response says that then I'm going to uh, gouge out the woodwork and, right, and right. crack and the I'll driveway. And I'll make you go through all, jump through all the hoops and take six months to do it. Meantime, I'm not going to spend any money on the upkeep. Uh, right. You know, I'm not going to mow the lawn. And so, so there is sort of you know a back and forth that uh, that, that goes on there. The well, other thing is is you know that uh, as you alluded to, it's not just that the house goes down in price now. What seems to be driving it is the expectations of when the house is going to go up in value. And so one of the real problems we have now is certain areas of the country, it seems, just seem to have become overbuilt yep. in terms of supply and demand. Yep. A lot of these sort of ring suburbs around uh, Las Vegas, out here in Loudoun County, we've got uh, horrifically high foreclosure in rates. Virginia. In Virginia, right. Um, we've got horrifically high foreclosure rates, which I think reflect the fact that that people who are uh, have houses that are underwater and they have no expectation that they're going to come back into the money yeah, anytime might soon. Might be a very, very like, yeah, right, long and time. so they're walking away. Last question: We're almost out of time. The um, the innovations in the in the mortgage market of mortgage backed securities and collateralized mortgage obligations uh, had a had a big benefit, which uh, you've recognized in some of your work and and. We used to recognize more often when it, when the costs that weren't there, but the benefit was a lot of people got to buy a house, get, got access to credit that they right. normally in, historically would not have would not have had access to. One of the problems it seems with that, although I don't think this gets enough attention, you see it alluded to occasionally, is that it has changed the ability to do these workouts. That is. In a situation where someone really does fall on hard times, either because of macro effects, regional factors, bad luck, whatever it is individually, um, people in the past would go to their mortgage issuer and say, look, I know I owe you this money. I, I, I'm hopeful I'll find a job in the next six months. Can you help me out in the meanwhile? And, and I hope to get back on my feet and keep my, keep my end of the deal. Uh, when these have been split up, uh, bundled and tranched and sliced and diced – it appears that that the ability – say it differently. The originator countrywide, for example, 
then resold the mortgage to uh, a, a, a Swiss pension fund uh, with 2,000 other mortgages in this bundle, there's no uh, owner of the stream, individual owner of the stream of payments. You're bundled with all these other people and there's no – the transaction costs there of working it out are basically infinite. Is that true? Is that a problem? That seems to be that, – that does seem to be a problem from what I can tell, that when these thing when these products, these mortgage-backed securities were created, they just never really anticipated they were going to be working on a lot of foreclosures. They had some sense, I think, of what the foreclosure rate uh, was going to be uh, and they would just you know deal with it. But they weren't going to be extend, you know, engaged in ongoing negotiation with borrowers and that sort of thing. So I think it's something they just didn't really think about. That's one of the costs uh, of, uh, of this. You mentioned the benefits also, and I hope one of the things that comes out of this is that people do remember that there were benefits. There are benefits from uh, from this this innovation. And one of the things we've seen in American history, to come full circle from where we started, is almost every single consumer credit device that has ever been introduced has gone through a boom and bust cycle, uh, whether it was the initial credit cards that were sent out in the 1960s where Bank of America um, just dropped credit cards in the mail to people. <laughs> Yeah, get them started. <laughs> and, uh, and and they misused it. Whether it was subprime auto lending in the 1990s, uh, which uh, had a, a complete catastrophe, and now has stabilized. Basically, we go. We seem to go through an initial boom and bust phase, but these innovations seem to end up staying with us if we allow them, and we we get rid of the excesses and oftentimes keep the core value that are in these uh, uh, in the products. And so, as long as so we should keep that in mind, that, that, that we don't want to overreact too much here because all these problems are going to be self-solving. A lot of people, a lot of investors lost a lot of money, um, and they're not idiots. They're going to learn from that. Uh, and so we've learned a lot of very expensive lessons, but let's keep in mind we have learned lessons about where the, uh, where the problems lie. My guest today has been Todd Zawicki of the George Mason University School of Law. Todd, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.